1 Peter chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as you turn there, just a couple things. Um, if there's something we could pray for you about, if there's a way we could serve you um, as our church, uh, please let us know. Uh, in a moment after I read this, I'm going to pray for us because I know we're four months into this, and all of us who are here, plus all of the people who are unable to be here, there are inevitable um, temptations. There's inevitable burdens. There's inevitable difficulty that people are enduring, and I just want to pray. I want to pray for us uh, that God helps us in the middle of this, uh, this time. But for now, let's read the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the book that we've been studying since the beginning of the pandemic, really, around, I guess, since Easter time. This is Peter attempting to help us learn how to live in a world that doesn't feel like home. So if you feel like you're not exactly comfortable, if all of your plans don't come true, if you feel pressed in and even persecuted or pushed against in different ways, this book is for you. He's now coming to the end of it. I do want to point out as I begin to read chapter 5, this is now a couple of full chapters since Peter said the words, finally, and then began to teach. And so, if you feel like we've been at this for a while, it's not my fault. This is an apostle of Jesus, and how dare we, you know, say that he's gone on too long. He is not. What he's doing now at the beginning of chapter 5 is he's turning toward the church, and the question we're going to see, or the thing we're going to reckon with today is, how does God shepherd His people? How does He care for the church that He's called to Himself? If we are here stewarding the gospel in a time that's going to be temporal, if this world's not our home, we're just sojourning through, how is He going to keep us? How does He organize us, and how does He care? And that's what He addresses here, beginning in verse 1. This is the fifth chapter of 1 Peter. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'm going to pause right there. Let's humble ourselves, and we will acknowledge our need, and let's ask God for wisdom. Let's pray. God, I'm asking you this morning to be kind to us, to be gracious. I pray for, for all of the ways that we've been scattered as a church. And my guess is, even for those of us who are who are here this morning, who made, made time and have come, there are hidden temptations and difficulties. There's discouragement. There's frustrations. Maybe there's feelings of isolation and, and loneliness, confusion or fear. And maybe those who are not feeling isolated are fearful, just annoyance at the state of our world. And we pray, God, would you keep us? Would you protect us? I pray for the unity of the church in these days. Help us to know how to love one another well when we feel like we can't even be in the same room or talk. I pray, God, for the ministry of the church. I pray that it wouldn't be on hold. We ask that you would be reaching the lost, that the gospel would be true in the hearts and minds of people who need hope, need to be forgiven. And I ask now that as we study the Bible, as we do what is what is part of who we are. This is 
This is our identity. We're your people. We've gathered in your name on your day. And I pray that as we consider your word, that you teach us, humble us, give us eyes and ears, make our hearts attentive to you. Holy Spirit, have your way. Uh, We know that any good and lasting fruit that comes out of this this morning is going to be your work, Spirit of God. So, So come powerfully in our midst and give ourselves to you and this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this message, this section of 1 Peter chapter 5 is an interesting one to teach because it is about me and some of us. This is you listening in as I teach about what I'm supposed to be doing. It's kind of what I'm doing. I'm giving you a, an insight. I'm going to have to teach through the job description of what I'm supposed to be doing And part of my job description is to teach that job description well so that you can figure out whether or not the job description is being fulfilled well in our church. And so there's some trepidation here. I hope it's godly trepidation. I hope it's the kind that says I want to do this well and not the kind that says I just want to look good, that kind of thing. But this passage, Peter turns his attention in verse 5. He's just said this profound thing at the end of chapter 4. He says, there's going to be judgment coming in the world, and so let judgment begin with the household of God. That's where the word so is here at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 5. He's just said household of God is where the judgment of God, His refining fire should start, and then He turns His attention, so, and then He addresses this group, and it's this group, these elders, that we're going to spend time today identifying and thinking through the theme of these five verses is how God cares for His church. How does He shepherd His people? And we're going to ask and hopefully answer well a few key questions concerning leadership in God's church. We're going to discuss who are the elders. What does this mean? Who is he addressing? Who is he exhorting? Then we're going to discuss and kind of consider, well, how should they function? And their name and their function is going to be closely tied together. How do they function and how do we know if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing? And then ultimately we're going to say, well, how does this relate to Jesus and the whole church? So I'm just going to dive right in, and we're going to ask and answer these questions. The first thing you might be saying is that Peter has assumed the identity of this group of people. He says, so I exhort the elders, and if you knew nothing about church or nothing about the rest of the Bible, if you hadn't read First and Second Timothy or Titus, if you hadn't seen the Apostle John later in his letters call himself an elder, or if you weren't familiar with the Old Testament history of Israel where they had elders who would sit in the gate to rule the people, You would ask, the most obvious question is, well, who are the elders? That's who he's exhorting. And I want to identify and tell you a few things that I believe the Bible assumes about this group. The first thing that we see is that there is, in God's people, wherever the church is found, there is a group of people who are responsible for its health and care and shepherding. These are people who feed God's people. And I'm going to use the word sheep because he's using that narrative here, and it's not an insult. Jesus Himself, one of the most common ways He describes us, followers of Him, is sheep. So the elders, wherever there's a church, there is a group of people charged with caring for the people of God, the sheep of God, and here in this instance, He introduces them by calling them elders. Now, He assumes the existence of elders because the Bible is consistent that wherever there is a church, where there is people of God, there should be elders. This is why Paul, in Titus chapter 1, the fifth verse, he says, to, he says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, to put in order what remains. That's a funny way to describe Paul's ministry. Paul goes in and he just, he's busy. 
He's preaching, he's heralding, he's arguing, he's fleeing for his life sometimes in different places. He basically has a big revival service, preaches from the Old Testament, and then the Spirit of God moves, and people are converted, and they're confessing Jesus, and they're getting baptized all over the place. He leaves a big holy mess behind, and then he leaves town, and he points at Titus, and he says, whatever remains, remains sounds like he's leaving carnage behind, but it's actually life, not death, right? Put what remains in order, and then the thing that he tells him is, appoint elders. That is the custom in every place. Appoint elders. And that direction from Paul is then borne out in everywhere that we read about the church. Whenever we find the existence of a church in the New Testament, there is a group among them that has been set apart by God to give leadership and feeding and care. So, this group exists. That's the first thing we should know about them. Well, who are they? Well, they're a thing. They're a group of people charged with the oversight of a church. The second thing that I want to point out, if we want to ask the questions, well, who are these people, is that they have a variety of titles in the New Testament. They have a variety of titles. In fact, even in these short verses that we just read, there's a number of titles given to describe them. The first and most common here in these verses is elder. That's a Greek word, presbyteros. And for those of you who are super sharp and had coffee this morning, you may think to yourself, presbyteros, well, that sounds like the church down the road, and it is where the Presbyterian church gets its name from. So, like Baptists take their beliefs concerning and practices concerning baptism, and they knock it onto the top of the denomination and say, well, this identifies us. Presbyterians take the word presbyteros for the way that eldering and governance works in the church, and they say, well, this is how we organize. This defines us. We have a very similar view or a similar practice of eldership. We don't call ourselves Presbyterians, but it's this word that is one of the titles given for this group, presbyteros. However, and this might get confusing, the New Testament actually uses a bunch of different words for this role, and he uses them right here. In verse 2, he uses the word poimen or poimeno because he's using the verb form of it, and that just means shepherd. And then we get from poimen or poimeno, and shepherd is essentially where we come right on down to what you might see on my letterhead, pastor. And the Bible often says the word pastor, it uses it mostly as a verb, but there's other times where it describes someone as a shepherd, which is where we get this agrarian term to pastor a church. But what's funny is, is that he introduces elders and then he tells them to pastor. So what we get as an inference from the way the Bible teaches us consistently is there's not really a fundamental difference between the titles of elder and pastor. They seem synonymous. Then, to confuse us perhaps a little bit further, and hopefully you're not confused and you're following along, the phrase that he uses after shepherd in verse 2, there's another title that comes out. He says, exercise oversight. That's a word, episkopos. And now, if you like church polity and organization, you're really getting excited and nerdy because you say to yourself, well, episkopos, that sounds like the Episcopal church. And you would be right that the Episcopal church takes this word for the role of a particular person. They, in their idea of this have what they call a bishop who is giving oversight of the church, and they say, well, let's slap that on to identify who we are and how we practice. But it is our conviction and the way that we function at Four Oaks. If you're ever curious, like, oh, how do we do this? What's going on? When I say the word elder or when I say the word pastor, we don't use the word bishop. I think, honestly, just because of the connotation, it makes it seem, well, I don't know how it would seem. If I introduced myself as bishop, I don't know what you'd think. 
but we don't use that word. But I think that these are all interchangeable. They're synonymous in many ways, depending on what wants to be highlighted as the function of the title, we think that they're interchangeable. So, we have an elder team, a board of elders at Four Oaks Midtown. And when that group of six guys comes together, it includes Pastor Zach and myself. Now, we call what we do pastor because we have, in our eldering, been given the privilege and the honor and really the the call to say, why don't you give all of your time to this? This has become your vocation. So we say pastor, but really, ultimately, the way that our bylaws read and the function in the church, we see them in many ways as synonymous. So if you said to me, and I don't care about titles, just for the record, I never introduce myself as Good morning, everyone. I am Reverend Olam, and I'm so glad that you've come. Or I don't say Pastor Lance. I think if people say that, I'm never going to correct them. I think that that can be a healthy practice. So titles don't necessarily matter, but if you said of me that I'm an elder of this church, it's not going to be corrected by saying, well, actually, it's a pastor of the church. We use them together. We use them synonymously. We use them interchangeably in many, many ways. The way our bylaws read is that we have vocational and non-vocational elders, and that just means some of us do this for all of our time and our living, and some do it non-vocationally, more in a volunteer role. The joke that I've heard amongst elders, and I think I've only heard it here, is that some elders serve and get paid, and some elders are good for nothing. That's what, you you see the joke there? You get the idea? Because good for nothing can mean, anyway, you got it. We use them interchangeably, this crew. So this title is given, and it's in the Bible. Wherever the church is organized, wherever the church is found, there's a group that has this title. And I want to point out one other thing that may be obvious, but as we're defining who these are, it might not be from the start, and that is that it's always plural. It's always plural. He says, I exhort the elders among you, and then adds himself to the number. When he tells Titus, he says, appoint elders and put them in place. And I think that God has done a very wise thing here. When he wants to care for his people, he doesn't just put one person in charge. There's going to be enough, as we're going to see in the rest of the passage, there's going to be enough temptation to domineering kingdom building self-aggrandizement that he doesn't want it to just be one person. It's always what we call a plurality. So we have built into the way the church is organized and governed a group of these people. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. I'm just going to name a couple that I can think of right off the top of my head. One is protection for the church. This means that any one elder, any one pastor, any one overseer who goes insane or crazy or becomes self-aggrandizing or sins in particularly hard and unrepentant ways they can be confronted by and taught by and encouraged and exhorted by the other elders. This is a protection even if it is potentially inefficient. And there are some times when it can be inefficient. Anytime you need to lead something or make decisions or be on mission, you know that the more people you add, the more difficulty you have. When it was just you, it was so obvious you were going to a Mexican restaurant for lunch then you invited three of the rest of your friends, and now you're 35 minutes in the parking lot figuring it out. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite dead people. He once said, he once said, 
talking about church committees and how inefficient they can be, he said, I've often thought that the absolute best church committee is comprised of only three people. And of those three people, two of them stay home. That was his idea because it's inefficient in some ways, but it's inefficient for a purpose. It's a protection to make sure that one person's ambition does not lord it over the whole church. I also think that there's another reason that God has created a plurality. Why? And that's related to what he's already taught in 1 Peter, and that is is that each is given a gift. Though there is a calling and a title that's given that is very similar, it does not mean that every part of the group of pluralities, that's a hard word to say, the, the more than one group, it doesn't mean they're identical. So, there is measure and difference in gifts. And God knows that in order to shepherd the, the people of God and to care for the church well, there's going to have to be people who have an emphasis or a giftedness, particularly in different ways. So, calling people to worship, pointing to Scripture and pulling out themes of melody and music, that kind of thing. My guess is, is that you would not want all of our elders to equally do this task. There's giftedness. There's a well-roundedness that comes. There's different competencies that come. Furthermore, I believe that God has cared for not only the church, but for the individual elders by giving the plurality of elders. I'm going to get that word right. I'm just going to keep trying. I don't even care. He's given this for the sake of the elders, and this is what this means. Do you know that pastors need pastors? Do you know how much harm has been inflicted upon the church down through the ages because there are particular instances, sometimes churches or pastors themselves, who do not believe they need pastoring? The isolation that can come from leaders in churches being assumed to be, by themselves or by others, assumed to be above correction, assumed to be so strong spiritually that they don't need to be poured into. Here's the trick. There is a group, a plurality of elders, because the elders are sheep themselves, and they need to be shepherded. They need to be fed. I cannot tell you how reassuring and comforting it is to know when the weight of the church rests on me, probably anxiety to a level that I don't need to take on, worry, I'm praying, I want to know how to help, concern for things. You don't know how comforting it is to go each week to a group of men who are joyfully praying for me, who are asking questions, who are pressing into marriage and family and heart. Leaders need to be led. None of us is above this. So God says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. What remains when the gospel goes through and people are called to me, I'm going to put this group in place, but it'll be a group, a plurality. Now, there's one other thing about the identity, and this is somewhat getting into, and this is the funny part about title and function. You can't really separate them. So, for instance, if you say in a home, well, what is a mother? You can describe her identity and the title, a mother in a home, but then you also will inevitably start describing, in order to describe her identity in a home, what she does. And it's hard to draw distinct lines, right? And it's going to be the same way with eldering, so for the most part, I'm still in the topic of title but we're getting into a mix of what they do. Here's one thing they do. 
they love the people they worship with. Leadership in a church is designed to be, and I'm just going to use this word, it's one of my favorite words in all of the world, local, close, known. He says twice in these passages, I exhort the elders among you. Here's what, it, here's what the concept is. It means that anyone who's reading this, they're their place in a local church, they should be able to identify and look around and say, oh yeah, yeah, they're with us, this group. This group is with us, local. It means that when you organize and consider the way that a church is to be led, one of the benefits, now sometimes God's Spirit moves, and I hope, I hope we are so overwhelmed with people in the next five years that lost people come to know Jesus and overwhelm us to the point where we don't know what to do. But one of the tasks that happens when that happens is we need to make sure that we never lose the reality that those people need to be cared for and shepherded by elders who worship with them in the same room. Elders who at least at some level could pray for them and be known. Knowledge, love, and intimacy, a closeness is developed only by elders who are among. Not only as church members, should you know who your elders are? But then elders, in verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I believe this is a positive identification of them. They are people of the church. They are not a walking ministry. The church is not led by giftedness. It's led by fellow members, fellow parts of the body of Christ. I might as well just say it straight out loud. This means that if you are in Jesus Christ and a part of His church, you cannot be eldered by a podcast. Of course, I don't mean the Four Oaks Church Midtown podcast found on everywhere podcasts can be found. Download it now. But for real, there is a ton of information and good teaching that can be handled across, but you cannot be eldered. You, elderded. you can't be shepherded. You can't be loved. You can't be known. You can't have hands laid upon you and be prayed for in moments of weakness and sickness and need. The picture that we get of the New Testament is a local church that knows one another with real burdens being shared, prayers being uttered that are not overly generic but come with some specificity because of proximity to the people they love. This group is a plurality. This group is local. That is assumed in the Bible, and that's what Peter says. This is how God cares for His church, His household. While we're here, while we're waiting in a world that's upside down, the glory of Jesus is going to be carried along by a local church with local elders. Now, I'm going to say as well, through this entirety of the time, The Scripture has much to say about the qualifications for these people in other parts of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. If you're curious, you could either look at the bylaws we have or go read those portions of Scripture. We have firm convictions. It's not just anyone who wants to do this. We believe that the Bible indicates that it's qualified men called and aspiring to the office, walking in a godly example, affirmed not only by aspiration but by fruitfulness of fellow elders and the church. There are checks and balances here. It's not just anyone, but I'm going to use the term men because the Bible is clear that this particular role of oversight in the church is to be qualified men. That's the identity of who they are. Well, what do we mean by who they are? And then we're going to think about now, 
well, what are they doing? How are they supposed to function? And here we get a couple of interesting things. He tells them to shepherd the flock. And again, I'll remind you, this indicates that we are sheep. Sheep is a word used by Jesus most often. Peter probably remembers specifically that this is the task of of eldering and pastoring because you recall Peter's reconciliation, his redemption back relationally with Jesus post-resurrection. He tells him to feed his sheep. Now, many of us wish that God would have identified us with a more glorious creature. Shepherd the eagles among you. Shepherd the honey badgers in your midst. Shepherd the lions, the great rhinos or whatever you want to be. Now, sheep are a very interesting bunch. Sheep, I think most often the way that they're described the way that we should get the the picture of them, I think comes with a picture of vulnerability. Why do God's people need shepherding? Because they are vulnerable. Never once have I ever heard a sheep, and that could be either singular or plural, a group of sheep, a flock of sheep. I've never ever once heard them be described as ferocious and competent. They need to be protected. I've heard it said before that sheep are an odd creature in the sense that other than the shepherd and one another, all they have is enemies. They don't eat, they don't eat other creatures. They are, they are woefully inadequate for fighting off their own and providing for their own protection. Sheep are vulnerable and need to be protected. They need guidance. Now, careful guidance. Sheep are herded and slowly guided. They're not driven I've also heard it say that sheep are not cattle. You know, how, how are cattle moved? A cattle drive. This means that a leader would have to take out rams and cajole and poke and push. Now, sheep are, are herded and pressed. Sheep need to be fed, led to pasture, but sheep also need to be corrected and pulled away because if the food is good, or if it's enjoyable to them, the funny thing about sheep is that they will continue to eat right off a cliff. Did you know this? That if you don't be careful, if you're not careful about it, sheep in a flock will walk directly off the side of a cliff. And it's this reality that we are sheep. Now, not only the people in the church being shepherded, but the shepherds themselves. It's this reality that God has installed a system of feeding and guidance and protection known as elders. And we need to be humble enough to realize one of the things that needs to be implicit down in the soul of a Christian the moment we come to Christ is to look around and to say, I'm not enough. I need to be helped. I need to be prayed for. I want to be taught. I want to be instructed. I want to be accountable. It is not a Christian attitude. It is not the Spirit of God at work in someone who comes to know Jesus and then says, wonderful, I am now more powerful and independent and free than I've ever been. I don't need anyone. All I have is Jesus. No, to know Jesus is to remind you of your weakness and your vulnerability and your need for guidance and feeding. So you look around and you say, where's my flock and where are my shepherds? You long to be known. Sometimes the job description that we receive is best described by what not to do. And that's what happens here in Peter. 
Peter acknowledges something right from the start. If you have been uncomfortable already in this, because I'm talking about authority and oversight and someone watching. In fact, the Bible itself, Hebrews 13, says that those who are elders or have oversight in a church will give a, have an, to give account, an account for your souls. They're your soul watcher. If this makes you feel uncomfortable and you think, I don't like the man, I don't like authority, I'm just fine by myself, you may be uncomfortable because you know that one thing that comes with oversight and authority is the potential for abuse. And this is why it's such a wonderful thing that Peter acknowledges and says, here's what you ought not to do. Don't do this if you're in the role of an overseer. Don't do this. One, he says, don't serve in a begrudging way. Don't shepherd people in a way that makes them feel like they're a nonstop burden on you. It is not honoring to Jesus, nor helpful to His church, to be given the task of being a shepherd and spend all of your time shepherding, going back to God to complain about sheep. He says, shepherds ought to willingly have an aspiration to sacrifice themselves, time, energy, prayer, to serve the flock that they are among. They should do this willingly. That means, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, this means that one of the first places that service in the church, and this title comes, must come from a calling of God from within. What we're going to find out in a minute is you don't get to dominate. You don't get to make yourself rich off of God's people. So if you understand those two things and avoid them, What you're really being called to is a life of sacrifice and service, which is why we ought to, from the soul, have an aspiration to do it. That's where it begins. The first question we ask any man around the church, and I hope that God plants this in the hearts of men through the next 10, 15, 25 years, but the first question we ask is, do you feel called of God? Do you have a desire to see the church beautiful, to care for His people, to love them well, and are you willing to sacrifice yourself for that cause? If so, we're on the first path toward shepherding. He goes on and he acknowledges some of the other ways that oversight could be abused. The first is just plain old greed. And I don't think I have to give you many examples. I mean, if you know the church at all and the abuses that you've seen in it or the critiques that culture may have of it, just imagine a leader in a church with his hand out saying, my jet is old. We're falling behind. I need a new one. That's the most extreme example but all the way from there down to the lowest of levels. What he says, if you're going to shepherd and serve God's people, you need to check your heart if you're just in it for the benefit of what you get. One of the ways I believe that the Roman Catholic Church suffered down through the ages is that priestly positions in cultures and in societies and places were given out as benefits because people got a nice little stipend and a little bit of respect and probably some cred with God spiritually if they had that role, that post. And so for a long time, the priesthood, a place of service in the church, became a means of widening your cultural influence and seeming to be a more respectable person to be enriched even if slightly. This must not be found among God's leaders. Not for shameful gain. Now, shameful gain is the phrase here. It doesn't mean just gain. Peter, at times, was 
compensated. Paul took up offerings at different times. Jesus himself said that a worker is worthy of his wages. But there is a willingness by anyone engaged in this business to say, please check my heart and care for me so that I may not be in this for my own benefit. That is one way that it could be abused. Secondarily, and we all know this, if anytime anyone's got oversight of anything, like you make one toddler in charge of the toddler room and immediately watch them say, wait a minute, can I dominate? You're kidding me. Here's the thing about power. It corrupts. You know the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Peter knows, well, one of the difficulties here and one of the things that must be avoided if you're to be a shepherd of God's people is you cannot be domineering over those in your charge. Don't be domineering Don't be driving. Don't use people to accomplish the mission that you believe will further your self-aggrandizement in the world. People in God's church should not feel as though they've been run over for the sake of a leader's passion or pocketbook. This idea of domineering, though, is possible. And I think this is about the time as we see this and realize that what Paul was telling shepherds and exhorting them to in the early church is the same plague that we have dealt with down through the ages. Far too often, the most public sins of leaders and elders that are put forward are these kind of sins. We see example after example of would-be shepherds who feed themselves on the sheep called to serve and to care, they become charlatans who enrich themselves through ministry. Or worse than that, the number of times that I've seen people who were respected and admired for their ability to move the vision of the church forward, what a visionary, what an amazing leader, end up disqualifying themselves because they are so domineering and stubborn and unteachable They run people over and use them to further their own little kingdom. I should also say at this point, we must always cling to the picture that the Bible gives of people who are called to lead in God's church. Character matters more than we think. Competency follows character in a profound way. If the main characteristic a church is looking for is the characteristics of a domineering bully CEO of a leader. They are on the wrong path and must be corrected. This means that in any elder or person who's leading in a church as well, it's not merely marital infidelity. And I say merely not in, not in a small way. That is a massive disqualifying sin. But in addition to that, it's not just if they embezzled money or just if they. We need to say out loud, if there is unchecked, stubbornness, pride, and unteachability, if there is a non-repentant heart in a leader within the church, this is a disqualifying sin. I've been in many, many circumstances and in many, many worlds of Christianity where it seems like issues of character, especially gentleness in leadership, is overlooked because of giftedness or competency or perceived fruit that is taking place. And Peter says, do not let this be the case. Reject that idea of leadership. Oh, they get a lot done. I know they're a little rough around the edges. Yeah, yeah, they run people over a little bit. But, you know, it's a big deal. I mean, look what's happening. No, don't look what's happening. Call them to humility. 
This is what Scripture teaches concerning leaders. This is how they are to lead. So, elders are a plurality, a group of qualified men serving locally in the midst of a church that they know and love and sing with. They are to shepherd, keeping in mind the vulnerabilities and the need for feeding and protection of sheep. And they do so willingly because of a calling from God, not begrudgingly to complain. They desire to serve Jesus, not themselves with shameful gain or some sort of power trip. I think oftentimes because churches are full of sheep, and humans generally are just like this. Uh, Jesus said of those who were lost, He had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. It's not just Christians, like somehow we come to Jesus and we become dumber. Just human beings, we're, we're lost souls in many ways. We're living in a fallen world affected by sin. And unfortunately, because people are like that and churches are like that, when we lose sight of these things, we must say out loud, unfortunately, if we allow it, churches can be a breeding ground for narcissistic, self-serving, gift-focused people. And oftentimes what happens is is the giftedness and the charisma, especially of young leaders, carries them to a place that their character can never sustain them. Slow, humble, ongoing, selfless shepherding is the mark of a leader in God's church. And if all of this sounds difficult, because I will tell you as someone who has felt since my latest to mid-teens that God may be calling me to serve the church with my whole life, it is terrifying to think about trying to do this well. I hear stories of elders or leaders who fall, and I just think to myself, well, man, maybe I should just quit now, because for now at least there's been no massive major scandal. Furthermore, I think about the needs of the church I pray for you, and I I attempt to be helpful when I talk with you about things. And then I read Hebrews that reminds me that I'm going to have to give an account for the souls of the people in our church, in our context. And I think, God, how can I do this? I'm just a sheep shepherding. One answer to this conundrum is to remember that there are other elders, to remind myself, to humble myself, and to be pastored. But the second way we do this, and this is where Peter goes in the fourth verse, is to remember that this is a mere stewardship and that Jesus, who has promised to be with us always to the end of the age, is here in our midst. He is the chief shepherd, and He will do this perfectly. He reminds them that their reward is not going to be here temporally, that one day Jesus will come and relieve them of their duties and all of the difficulty of it, and He will come in perfection. It is Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And He will appear. There will be glory coming. And then the picture here is that these faithful servants who have served well will receive an unfading crown of glory. The word that's underneath, it's uh, armantios or something like that. I'm going to add it down. Now, I can never say the name of this flower. I think it's uh, amaranth. Amaranth, I think, is a flower. It comes from that word. And the idea, I think, is borrowed from Roman games where when you won, you got a garland of flowers to show that you were a victor. And what Peter writes is that those who have served faithfully one day will be shepherded perfectly by Jesus who will give to them an unfading. This amaranth flower is known for being persistent and everlasting. 
I've never once planted a flower that I said, that's a persistent everlasting flower. <laughs> Flowers just always die. But this one apparently is special. And that's the kind of garland that those who are faithful will receive. What we do here is merely under-shepherd the church that is Jesus start to finish. That means that any direction I give, any teaching I give, any direction, any correction, any rebuke, any service, they're derivative. They're secondary. They are to be trusted and they are only powerful in so much as they follow the example of Jesus. Church leadership is only effective and God-glorifying in so much as it remembers and points back to Jesus who has ultimate authority. The thing that holds this together finally in the accounting of all things is kind of a hinge verse in verse 5. It ushers us into the rest of the book. He says, likewise, those who are younger, I think this means that there are some who are almost serving deacon-like in the church, probably also with a connotation of age, that they should be subject to the elders. Don't make eldering a difficult task. The goal of any church member, including myself, I should make I should make the task of pastoring me a joy for my fellow elders and pastors. As someone in a church, if you say, well, what do I want to do here? How should I be? I would say the first and foremost thing to pray is to pray that you are joyfully shepherded, that you can be joyfully shepherded. And the only way this works on all accounts, how does someone who's given charge and a title keep from domineering? How is someone who's renewed renumerated for their job in the church, not make it out to be a job and just professionalize it? How does someone who's not Jesus and is a sheep themselves do this well without sinning? And how does any church member, knowing full well the sheepness, sheepness, I had a good little turn of phrase, it's so hard to say. How does a church person, knowing the sheepness of its leaders, see, I'm just a sheep, how do you not follow sheepishly? See what I did there? See how that, isn't that dovetail? So how do you not follow sheepishly? Well, the way this is going to work is if all of us have humility toward one another. It is humility that is the linchpin of the church. The reason we must reject leadership that reeks of pride, no matter how effective or how gifted. Oh, yeah, he's a total jerk behind the scenes and runs people over and it's terrible, domineering, just uses everyone for his own mission. But let me tell you, really effective, really gifted. The reason that has to be rejected is because God opposes the proud. You couldn't say it more clearly. God opposes the proud. And far be it from the church to install in its leadership and its culture and its members something that God is fundamentally opposed to. We cannot claim to be God's people and then walk in a spirit that God has openly said, I hate that, and reject it. It is humility. It is the humble that received grace. It's the humility of the church that marks it as different. It's the humility of the church that allows leadership that otherwise should be seen with suspicion. It allows leadership when we all look at one another and we say, ultimately, we're under the chief shepherd, right? Let's humble ourselves together and worship Him. And that is the hope of the church. That is the hope of the household of God that is holding on and being kept together even in the midst of a crazy world, like an absolutely crazy temporal world. But Jesus will come back, His church will be pure, it will be glorious, and we will be a part of it. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this morning.
I thank you for the Word of God that demonstrates these things. I pray you'd help us. We are, we are organism. We're the living body of Christ. It's not a place or a building or a set of bylaws, but there's also the very realistic idea that we're an organization. Decisions have to be made, and teaching needs to be offered, and gathering spaces secured, and times to be together, and all that sort of stuff. And so help us to take these words of the Bible and then put them into practice the most honest and best way possible. Where we fall short, God, humble us, convict us. And what you've given, I pray we'd see it as for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.